So now that we all have handouts, now that we all have Bibles, I want to remind you of what we're up to this summer in our series in which we are tackling misconceptions and hopefully transforming them in light of who God really is and how God is really at work. So we're calling this series Tackling Misconception, but every week we're addressing these misconceptions or false beliefs with a question. So where we've been, the first week we did, is God an angry tyrant? Which is basically the cultural narrative that says that God is a guy with a white beard and he's angry with you. And he sounds more like an ancient tribal deity that needs to be appeased than a loving father whose mercy outlasts judgment. That was our first week. Last week was, is God a cosmic vending machine? Right? Is God just a cosmic machine in which you punch the right religious buttons and then you get everything you want? And then if you don't get what you want, you do what you do at a normal vending machine, right? <laughs> no? That's why I didn't do that last week, because it doesn't go over well. That was last week, cosmic vending machine. Tonight, our question is, is God a kill joy? Is God a killjoy? How many of you have heard that phrase, a killjoy? Okay, keep your hands raised. Who is the killjoy? Oh, wow. Okay, we have a few honest people in the world. You are not a killjoy, Robert Vaughn. He's saying, hurry up, hurry up. We've got to play volleyball tonight. He is Mr. Joy back there. What I mean by killjoy is, is God this cosmic strict being that wants us to have no fun? Is God the Debbie Downer in heaven that wants to be the wet blanket and give us a bunch of rules in which he wants to limit and restrain us from living a life that's full of joy and he just wants to instead be a strict parent that wants to kill our joy? This is the narrative we'll be tackling tonight. This is the misconception we're looking at. Now, each week, as I've said and I'll say again, we don't just throw out these misconceptions because we don't like them and replace them with ones we do like. No, each week we're asking three big questions, and they're at the bottom of your handout. The first question is, okay, what's the false narrative we're looking at? Then the second question is, if that's false, then what is the true narrative? But then just to make sure we're not making it up, that third question is really crucial, and that third question says, okay, how does Jesus reveal this narrative to be true? Because I am convinced, and if you've been around this church long enough, you've heard me say that if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. The New Testament insists that Jesus is the image, the face of the God who is invisible. John says, we've never seen God, but Jesus has made him known. The New Testament insists in Colossians 1 where Paul writes that he is the firstborn from creation. He's the one that makes God revealed. And the writer of Hebrews says he is the exact image and representation of who God is. You want to know what God's like? Who do you look at? Jesus. So Jesus is the filter through which we put all of our narratives each week. He is the litmus test for every narrative about who God is and how God works in the world. You'll see a Dallas Willard quote on your handout, and I love the way he puts it there. I actually don't have that handout. Can someone help me because I didn't write this in my notes like a good preacher? Dallas Willard says, the process of spiritual formation in Christ is one of progressively replacing destructive images and ideas with the image and ideas 
that filled the mind of Jesus himself. Watch this. Spiritual formation in Christ moves toward a total interchange of our ideas and images for his ideas and images. We are transforming these narratives because the big idea for our series is your beliefs about God determine how you live your everyday life. So we need to make sure our beliefs and our narratives are healthy so that we could live the healthy lives God intended. And that's where we're headed tonight. So one of the places in Scripture that hints at a healthy life that is lived with God is the very first psalm. The Psalms are the prayer book for God's people. God's people Israel for centuries and centuries. And then the church after Israel, when God's people expanded to include the whole world, we see that the Psalms are still the prayer book of God's people. But what's interesting about Psalm 1 is it doesn't actually really begin with a prayer. If you look in the middle of the Psalm, as we're about to see, it begins with a picture Not just a prayer, but a picture. And the picture is what it looks like when someone lives life God's way. Because the psalm we're going to see tonight, the very first psalm that sets up the whole book of psalms, gives us a contrast of two completely different ways of life. I want you to imagine two different paths. Scripture talks regularly about two paths in this life. There is a way that God has set out and a path that you can journey with him. And then there is the path that is crowded with all the other people in the world who've not turned to God. And you hear Jesus talk about it, right, as the Broadway, right? Not Broadway, where you go see a musical in New York. But he says, this is a Broadway. And do you remember where he said it leads to? It leads to destruction, So scripture, one of the narratives we're seeing as we're diving into this is God a killjoy. We see that perhaps God wants us on his way because the end of his way is not destruction but actually life. So the first psalm paints these two contrasting, conflicting images and there's two different ways of life and he's saying there is one way that's God's way and there's the other way that is the way of the world. And this is the way if you never turn to God you would just find yourself on. And it sounds like this, right? It's my life, so I'm going to live it my way, and I want to do what makes me happy. Now, at some point, every one of us has lived this way. If you're like me, you probably lived this way sometime today. When I didn't go home and eat a peanut butter sandwich, I took my girls to Griff's, and I had a big old jalapeno cheeseburger. Whoops. And Teus is in the back. He's shaking his head because he wants me to lose some weight and get healthy. But it's my life and it's my way and I want to do what's happy. And the problem with this way is our psalm is going to portray is if we keep doing things our way, we may not even realize it, but the way of the world is this broad path in which we're all doing our own thing. But the kicker at the end of this psalm is that if we continue in our way, whether we realize it or not, we might realize too late that the end is destruction. And Jesus is going to tell us later in our end of our talk that the narrative he says is, no, if you remain in me, you will bear fruit and have life. 
And you thought that your way was the way that makes you happy. But we see the very first word in the very first song. If you look with me there, yours says blessed, but actually the word there is happy. But when I say the English word happy, we might not think of a jalapeno cheeseburger. You might be thinking of the Pharrell song from Despicable Me. It doesn't quite do justice to God's path, God's way. And the other path, the narrow path, if you would turn to God and find him, you see that actually God's way and God the giver of life is the way to true happiness. And that's the first word as we read this psalm once through and then we'll go back and answer our questions and see, is God really a killjoy, or is his way actually the best way and where we find true happiness and joy? Read with me in Psalm 1, silently as I read it out loud. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Here's our picture. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like a chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. So we've got these two contra uh, contrasting paths, and everyone is thinking, my way is the right way and the happy way, but he says, no, actually happy, or really you could read that first verse really more like this, because our English word doesn't do it justice. How joyful is the person who does not walk in this way? But the false narrative, if you look down at the bottom of your handout, says, no, actually, I believe that God's way isn't happy or joyful. I believe the false narrative is that God is a strict parent who just gives orders and never really lightens up. Many times our narratives that we can believe are actually projections that we put on God because we have probably created these narratives from other people in our lives. Perhaps we grew in, up in a household in which we had someone who was constantly giving rules, and the more we got rules, the more we wanted to what? Rebel. And so there's this narrative that says, well, if my environment was like this, then perhaps God is like this. And you could be tempted at the very beginning of this Bible to see the 613 commands that God gave his people. And you can begin to think that God gave us 613 commands so that if we would rebel, we would actually be punished. But what if God was not a strict parent? What if God was actually a parent who wanted to give us boundaries in order to protect us from the way that leads to destruction, as we saw at the end of our psalm? What if he says that, no, how joyful is the person who actually is not walking on the way of the world? But so many of us are like the teenagers who hear that curfew's at midnight and we're at least going to show up at 1 a.m. I think about when I was a teenager, my dad had procured from my grandfather a 1966 red hardtop Mustang 
that was gorgeous. And when did they sell that? I'm not lying to you, like one week before my 16th birthday. So like this week is my birthday, and to me it's actually the anniversary of like the day it killed my soul because the Mustang was gone. But it's because my parents knew something that I didn't, and that is the end of the road. The end of the way of the wicked, if you look down at verse 6 of Psalm 1, is actually destruction. Had I had my full-blown way, if I chose my way, I would go all the way out, all around town with this 66 Mustang, which was not up to seatbelt code, and I would have killed myself. But God knows the end of the road. I love when my wife Amy was walking with this group of high school girls, and she routinely told them, guys, you are going to graduate, God willing, soon. But I promise you, life does not end the moment you walk across the stage and get a diploma. Because I think that what she's getting at is something that we can all get at when we believe this narrative that my way is better than God's way. I know better. I don't need the boundaries. The other problem is we can't see the end of the road. And so often we see people who make choices that become habits, and then our habits become our character. And you can see in the psalm, verse 1, this kind of regression of movement. You see, happy is the one who does not walk, or not stand, or not sit. But if you circle those moving words, it starts with walking. And this is like the way that I'm going down my path, and let's call it lust or pornography. And all of a sudden, it's easy, I'm not caught, and this is a great thing because it's making me happy in this moment. And we need to reckon that sin is such a temptation because sin is fun at some time. And so you can just see the picture that the psalmist is saying, and and you can imagine, like, if I'm walking in this way, and, and this way of rebellion where God's law says, no, no, actually, Jesus said, you know, don't lust. If if you if you're lusting in your heart, it's the equivalent of committing adultery. It's the equivalent of, of, of betraying the spouse or the future spouse where God says, no, sexuality should be in the context of a husband and a wife in marriage, and it's a beautiful extension of the joyful love and life that God has for us. These are the boundaries that protect us, but we can't see the end of the road because these choices become habits, and then these habits become characters. And you see that the person who goes from walking, he goes to standing And then he sees that it's sitting in the company of mockers. And you see this picture where there's this regression. And it becomes like this immobilizing movement where this person went from walking in this way to standing in this way to sitting in this way. And I feel like this is a powerful image of how sin can get hold of us and blind us. And we can be sitting and looking around and we see that we're in the company of sinners and the company of mockers, which is a word for like the negative and menacing and bullying people. And all of a sudden you look up and God may give you the grace to see the truth. And I've heard it time and time again, being around AA and NA and celebrate recovery. The most gracious thing that God can give to these kinds of people and to us is when we find ourselves standing, sitting, walking, is for God to give us a rock bottom. It's for God to see that, that it's like the veil gets removed and we see the end game of our way before it's too late. But we say, no, God's way is archaic. 
I want to be free, but we really see when we're sitting in the company of these people, we actually see that this is no longer just a choice. It becomes a habit. It becomes a character in us, and we see that we're actually headed for destruction. So how do we turn and live? How do we get on the right path? And firstly, you just need to live a better story. Look with me in verse 2. He says, no, but whose delight, this is the one who's happy, who's really joyful, whose delight is in the law of the Lord. You can write out Torah, T-O-R-A-H, Torah. That's the Hebrew word. The Psalms were written in Hebrew for instruction. And sometimes it means the first five books of our Bible, which were actually those laws I just mentioned. Who would delight in the law? Someone who realizes that it's a better way and it's a better story. And then you need a better habit and look at the end of verse 2. Not just a better story, the Torah, the instruction, but actually a better habit. And that is the one who meditates on his law day and night. We need to live out this better story. One of the ways that I think is the best formula that we've seen in our church for how to grow and get out of the destructive way and into God's way is found in James Bryan Smith's Apprentice series. And he says, you know, spiritual formation is actually attainable for the average person, but it requires the things that this psalm is talking about. And the first thing is what we're talking about all summer, and you can draw this on the back of your handout with me, is first you need to adopt the narratives of Jesus. So he says the first thing is what we've been talking about all summer, and that is adopting Jesus' narratives. Falling in love with the God Jesus knows. First we need to adopt Jesus' narratives. And this is basically what I've been getting at. If you jump down to verse 6, the narrative that Jesus will say is, in the Gospels, turn, turn, your way is leading to destruction. So adopt Jesus' narratives, adopt the narrative of Psalm 1 that says, no, your way is the way of this wickedness, it's the way of destruction, you need to turn. And he says, the first thing you need to do is adopt the narrative of Jesus, and Jesus says, no, you've got to see the end game before it's too late. The second thing we need to do, and this is in the bottom of the triangle here, is then you need to, once you've gotten the right narratives, you need to engage, or the other piece is engaging in spiritual disciplines. He calls them soul training, but I'll call them spiritual Disciplines. I just wrote disciple because I was talking and writing at the same time. Pretend I said disciplines. The second thing you need to do is engage in spiritual disciplines. Look at the second half of verse 2 in the Psalms. Don't just delight in God's story and God's instruction. He says, actually get on a better habit. And what does he say? Who meditates, what? Talk to me because I don't have it in front of me. What? Meditates on his law day and night. That word meditates is like a low murmuring. Can I have this community give me a low murmur? 
That word is used for when the community of people gathers and says prayers and says scriptures and in an oral culture where they didn't read and write, what they would do is they would memorize bits of God's law and they would carry them with them and murmur them in community throughout the day. How many of you took our Jesus Creed class in which we asked you to pray what the Hebrews prayed and murmured every day when they left, every day when they woke up, every day when they ate, every day when they went to sleep. It was this, remember, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Then what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then Jesus adds, and love your neighbor as yourself. To murmur, to meditate, what does that look like for you? In what ways do you envision yourself meditating on God's story as a reminder that it's better than all the alternative stories of your life and culture that says, do this, do that, go your way? What would it look like for you to murmur God's word? Could I commend to you a couple things to think about? I heard another pastor use what's called a breath prayer. You've heard me probably talk about breath prayers. It's a sentence that you can murmur throughout your day. The most famous is from a Greek Orthodox tradition, and they call it the Jesus prayer, where it's basically Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. You can breathe in, you can breathe out. And they say so many depths of spiritual formation can be found. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Another pastor that I was just mentioning, a breath prayer that has been good for me this season is this. Christ is my life. He is all I need. So imagine I'm at Rock and Summer and I have meetings all day after and I have trying to teach and figure out what I'm doing in the mornings, and I just have a crazy week, and I stand up to preach, and I'm saying, God, help me. I can do it in something as big and spiritual as saying, before I get up here and talk, Christ is my life. He's all I need. I don't need to impress. I don't need to worry about how little time I did or this or how I did this or how stressed I am or that. How about when I go and walk in and have a difficult conversation with someone? How about you when you're going into work? How about you when you're frazzled with your kids? What is something you can murmur? Christ is my life. He's all I need. Lord, Son of God, have mercy. What does it look like for you to murmur something? Ask Pastor Bud after the service, and he will help you find a daily verse that will get emailed to you every day, and it's something that this group of people called the Morovians pray and have prayed every day for centuries. So if you come and tell me, well, dude, I can't murmur four chapters of Bible a day. Can you murmur one verse? Ask Pastor Bud, and he'll get you set up. What does it look like to have a verse of the day? One of the ways that I pray for you all in this church is in the context of my Bible reading every day, I try to follow the Book of Common Prayer, which has a psalm, an Old Testament, and a New Testament, and a New Testament letter, or a gospel and a New Testament letter every single day. Four little readings, and I try to read those through, and if one sentence grabs me, 
I will think of your lovely faces, and I will grab that sentence as my prayer that I can offer to you, because I just can't drum up enough prayers for all of you lovely folks, plus myself, because I need a lot of prayer. I'm giving you these examples by way of saying, in what ways can you meditate and engage in spiritual disciplines? In what ways can you murmur God's word? The third thing he says in this way of spiritual formation that the psalm, I believe, speaks to is this third piece that says participating in community. I like how all of these words are active and ongoing. Partici, you ready? Pay, ting, (laughs) in community. Did you notice what community is listed in this psalm that we're looking at tonight? Scoffers, sinners, mockers. God is not a strict parent. God is the parent that echoes your parents that says you are who you hang out with. Have you ever wondered why we try to do church the way we do church? Because we realize that the space in which we become like Christ for the sake of others is actually with others. Have you noticed our mission statement doesn't just saying following Jesus one-on-one to go win the world by yourself for all time and amen, glory, hallelujah. No, we follow Jesus what? Together for God's kingdom. Because to be a faithful presence is to show that Christ is a body in this world. That Christ inhabits all of us and the fifth or excuse me, the fourth piece, the engine that's running this whole triangle of spiritual formation is the Holy Spirit because we are dependent on him. We are dependent on Christ in us, the Holy Spirit's empowering in us. And you see that in the picture at the center of this psalm that says this is what it looks like for a joyful person to follow God's way. This is how they look. You with me? What does it say in verse 3? That person is like a what? Tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do, what? Prospers. What he means is that you are something that's rooted. You're drawing from something beyond yourself. It's deep. And there's a sense in which you're drawing in the streams that are dynamic and living and active. And you have this stream, this tree, feeding something that's really actually alive because it's bearing fruit and its leaves aren't withering. And it says, if you would set out on this way, you will prosper. And that doesn't mean, hear me, because this would be last week's message. It doesn't mean that we all drive Mercedes Benzes out of here, which is a bummer because I drive an 03 Saturn. No, whatever they do prospers is a way of saying the end game is life. But then he says in verse 4, and we're going to return to this tree. But you've got to see the contrast when he says jarringly in verse 4, not so the wicked. They're like a chaff, which if you thought of what the opposite of a tree is, a chaff is the little husky thing that comes on the very end of a head of grain. We did the sermon series in Ruth a while back, and we talked about the threshing floor, which sounds really awesome and like the title of a summer movie, but really it's just this big old flat place on a high 
plain in which they would take like a pitchfork. They've got all this grain gathered up and they would stick it and throw the grain up in the wind and the wind would blow through on this high plain and it would separate the little husks, the little chaff. Think like the sunflower seeds or the pistachio shells that you just take off and it's papering its light. If you threw it up high enough, the heavy grain would fall and the little chaff husks would just blow away into nothingness. So look with me in verses 3 and verse 4 and see how different the tree is from the chaff. This is the contrast of someone on God's way as opposed to somebody on the world's way. The first thing is the tree is rooted, right? It's planted, but the chaff is rootless. The wind blows it away. Then you see the second thing. This tree is planted by streams of water, so it's nourished, And the thing about a stream is it keeps going. It's fed by something and the tree is fed, so it's nourished. And this is this constant dynamic source. And the stream in this psalm is God's instruction, God's way. So over and over building the case, it says God's way is for your life. It's a boundary. It's the end that is life and life abundant, as we'll see toward the end here in a moment. So this tree is nourished, but the, tr- the chaff is that little papery, dried-off thing that blows. The third thing you see is that the tree, what, bears fruit. You know what trees that are fruit trees are supposed to do? Bear fruit. This is something that's healthy, and it's doing what it's made for. The real key subtext here is that if you go about your way, you're not producing anything. You're just like this chaff. It's not really good for anything. It blows away. Now, I want you to hear me. Are people who are on the world's way good for something? Yes. But they're not truly living life the way God, who created them, intended them to live it. What if God's way is actually the most human way to live? What if instead of greed and bearing fruit for myself, we were made to be generous and bear fruit and bless others? What if instead of promiscuity and going and doing my own thing with anyone I want, what if there is more life and love to be found and shared in the context of God's view of sexuality? What if instead of anger that says my way first and, you know, this is what I want to do, and what if instead of anger and hatred we have peace and love? The the, the thing that I'm trying to get at is what if the most human way to live is to live with the one who created humanity? What if God knows better than we do? And what if the, the way to really actually live, to be a tree that produces fruit, to be a tree whose leaves are green, is to live sustained by the stream, which is God's word, in the power of the one who spoke it. You see that its leaves don't wither whereas this husk is not even a leaf to begin with. I want to tell you this. There are seasons you bear good fruit. But if you are a tree, we know that you can't bear good fruit all the time. In a moment, we're going to look at 
Jesus' narrative, how he confirms this narrative to be true. And he talks about how we are a vine that's in him. And he says, but every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. So I want you to know that the healthy tree is a seasonal tree. And I want you all to hear that a healthy you is a seasonal you in which I'm giving you the permission as a pastor of this church to not be on all the time. I'm giving you permission to serve Monday through Friday at Rock and Summer and then to not serve if you've served too much and you're going to burn out and resent us for it. And I'm not even saying that as a joke. I'm saying that I have too many friends who started seminary with me, and the first chapel we had, we were sitting in rows of about 10, and they said, look down each side of the road to your left and right, and you'll see about 10 of you. One out of 10 of you will retire in ministry. And about 10 of my buddies in my little running circle, I've only been out of seminary for six years, six years last month. And of the 10, only three of us are even in ministry. Some of us aren't following Jesus. And I think it's because we believe the narrative that says you've got to be bearing fruit all the time. What the picture of the psalm is, is that it's your leaves aren't withering. And what that means is that you're always alive, but you don't always have to be on. And I think the shame of the church culture and the narrative that is so subsidious here is that we don't have a rhythm of work and rest when Jesus continually withdrew and did not, hear me, did not heal every person that needed healing. What do you do with that? Because Jesus became as we were to model what a true human is and a true human needs rest and cannot always be the walking emergency room that your family and friends think you ought to be. Jesus himself modeled for us what it looks like to be planted by streams of living water. So why do you think you can go on without drawing from the stream? Why do you think that you can adopt the narratives of Jesus and you can keep showing up at church, but you never sit down to draw from the wellspring of life? Jesus says, I'm the living water and those who would come to me would never thirst again. But he was also the one that says, come to me. Even though I might satisfy you, you still come. Jesus still came to his Father time and time again. The person who's following God's way knows how to truly be human. And contrasted against verse 4 and 5, which is the quality and destiny of the wicked, we see the true narrative is God is not a strict person who wants us all to just obey or else. No, he knows how we are to be truly human, to be a tree planted, and to be truly alive. So our true narrative is this. God is a loving father who shows us how to live an abundant life. I want you to turn to John, and we're going to spend the next couple moments answering now our third question. That was our second question. How does Jesus confirm this narrative to be true? As you're turning to John, notice that the wicked who's like a chaff that just gets blown away doesn't have a place to be a useful, life-giving, fruit-bearing person, but he also doesn't stand in the company of the what? He doesn't stand in the company of the righteous. 
doesn't stand in judgment. There is no community that he can be with because he's on the wrong path. He's not experiencing the abundant life. And now we turn to John chapter 10 and see why Jesus came. Verse 6 talked about in the psalm, the end is destruction. He says the one that's on that way is the thief who has come to steal, kill, and destroy. The end of one path is destruction. But look with me in John 10.10. He says, I have come that they may have what? Life and have it to the full. Jesus knows what it means to be truly human. Jesus knows what it means to show us how to live the fullest expression of human life. And so we turn over now to John chapter 15 as we answer our final question, how does Jesus reveal this narrative of the God who is a loving father who shows us how to live an abundant life as a tree planted, one who follows Jesus, Jesus picks up the imagery of Psalm 1 in his beautiful passage in John 15. He's sharing with his disciples a final sermon, a final instructions to live the way they're called to live. And he tells them this, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. This is just like the chaff. You gotta stay connected. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. This is what we mentioned earlier. You're going to have seasons in your life where you need to balance between work and rest and let God work on you no matter what. Verse three, he says to his disciples, you're already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. And then verse four, remain or abide or make your home or plant yourself, right, in me as I also remain in you. This is so crucial to this formation piece we looked at earlier. None of this is gonna work unless you have Christ and the Holy Spirit within you, energizing you, remaining in you. Because then he says, no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Verse five, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. We cannot walk in the way of God without God. And as we come to a close and really try to leave this narrative that we can believe if we're not careful, I think of a college student who a few years ago, he was at the church I had came from previously, but he had texted me when I was here at the neighborhood church, and he texted me and says, hey man, uh, I know it's been a while, but I'm really, really, really struggling. And Amy and I had just met with he and his girlfriend not too long before that, and we could just tell that like they wanted to ask us something, but didn't ask us something. Don't be afraid, but I know when you want to ask me something, but you don't ask me something, Okay. Because if you've been around people, you know kind of what's going on. And they were just super awkward. And so then they left and he said, hey, man, I couldn't ask you what I really wanted to ask you. And that is this, man, I need big time help because we are really, really struggling because we, we, I just really have this struggle with pornography and premarital sex. And I said, man, thank you for being honest. 
because I think we all need to be more honest with these choices that leads to habits, but know that there's grace and forgiveness here and know that you can turn and God doesn't want you to be perfect. He just wants you to be dependent on him. And I said all these nice things and he says, that's great. Will you just give me a verse? I said, that's awesome, dude, because that's engaging in spiritual disciplines. That's murmuring on God's word. Awesome. And so I sat for a minute, and I'm thumbing through my Bible, and I looked at all these verses that talk about, you know, abstain from sexual immorality and all these things and this and that. And I thought, you know what, man, right now this guy is living in this place of saying, you know what, God is a killjoy. This is something that's fun. It's hard for me to not do this. And I don't think just slapping this up on your bathroom mirror is going to fix it. Although I do believe that God's word can't return void, he was squarely in this narrative of saying, I just need to grin and bear this. God doesn't want me to live a full and joyful life. He wants to ruin my fun. And so let me put a verse of scripture that will make me feel guilty and perhaps guilt will motivate my behavior. But God was really gracious to me because I was a man just like him who struggled with the same things at certain times in my life. And I realize that if I'm not careful, I can view God as a killjoy and I can live out of a narrative that says this is the gospel, sin management, which is more about I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And maybe it's not lust and pornography for you. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's, it's this covet or, or greed. Maybe it's whatever. What is that habitual thing in your life? And how many of you can attest to the fact that the, I think I can, I think I can, if I can just manage it, it'll be fixed. This guy had tried and white-knuckled it time and time again. I had tried and white-knuckled it time and time again. And because God is gracious, he led me to this passage we just read. And so I said, let me look for some things for you. And then when I texted him, I texted him John 15, verses 1 to 11. And then you see on the little iPhone the little dots, right, because he's about to respond. And it's like he's looking it up, and he reads it, and then he sends back. He said, oh, man, I think that was a typo. That's because when we adopt the God is a killjoy narrative, we miss the gospel that says, not I think I can, I think I can, but the gospel of you are. This is who you are. You are a tree planted by streams of living water. You are a vine connected to Jesus himself. You are free from the power and penalty of sin. And if God would give you eyes to see, you will see the end of the road of your choices is your death. But God, in who is rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive with Christ. Colossians 3, he raised us up with Christ and seated us on the heavenly realms so that we could think of those things that are above. And then Galatians 5.16, if we would walk in the spirit, if we would remain in him, we would not gratify the desires of our flesh that say, I need to scream and yell at this person. I need to get and buy all I can. I need to live in all the narratives that are anti-Christ when I realize that I am in Christ and I realize that John 15 is actually the best verse for you to slap on your Bible and to slap on your bathroom mirror because if we would just abide in Christ, we would not try to out-Christ Christ. Christ. We would no longer have to try and produce. We can be a tree that's planted and drawing from something beyond ourselves that can do for us what we can't do on our own. So would we be people 
who sees God not as a killjoy, but what if we really believe that God was the most joyful being in the universe who delights in you even if you blow it? Because you are a son, you are a daughter, and in that moment of sin, in that moment of rebellion, you are acting against your true nature. You are a tree planted in him. And so we close with our final question. Jesus came so that we might have abundant life. And Jesus is the word or the instruction or the Torah his followers meditate on day and night. And he is a stream of living water we draw from to grow and bear fruit. Are we trees planted in him? drawing on the streams of God's word and the Holy Spirit living within us and living lives as we were meant to live? What if we believed that God really was the most joyful being in the universe and he gives us his way that he watches over to lead us into life? For whosoever believes in Jesus should not perish but have eternal and abundant life. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that you would just awaken our hearts to see you for who you are, and that is not a kill joy, but as the most joyful being in the universe, calling us upward and onward into life with you. Would you give us prayers and murmurs to walk in and with as we go through our day and night, trusting that your way is life and is better than ours. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Romans chapter 15, verse 13. May the God who gives hope fill you with great joy. May you get, have perfect peace as you trust in him. May the power of the Holy Spirit fill you with hope. Go in love and peace.